This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 593 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Scott McElroy. Now, Scott is not only a law enforcement and SWAT veteran, but he is a renowned figure in the world of Circus Strongman. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into policing, the incredible history of catch wrestling, Circus Strongman, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I really do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Scott McElroy. Enjoy. Well, Scott, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time, actually driving yourself to a good reception area to come on the Behind the Show podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. My pleasure. I'm honored to be here. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Porterville, California right now. I live in Springville up in Sequoia National Forest. I don't know if you ever heard of the big redwoods. Yes, sir. Uh, one of the six wonders. <laughs> I live up in that area and uh, I'm from Tulare County. And when I left the stunt business, uh, I moved back from Los Angeles where I lived for 20 years and back into Tulare County where I live now. Brilliant. All right. Well, I'd love to start at the very beginning. So tell me you know, where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. I was born in Bakersfield, California, which is about 40 miles south of where I am now. Um, my father was a minister and my mother was a kindergarten teacher. And I have two sisters. I'm the middle child. I have an older sister and a younger sister. Beautiful. Now, when you were at school age, what kind of sports were you playing back then? I played just about everything, but I was really into track and uh, just physical fitness in general. Um, but I was a wrestler all through school, and I played football all through school. And uh, again, track. Was, those were my three main. Now, I know martial arts ended up being a huge part of your life. So when did you start that? I started martial arts when I was around 15 and uh, in Shoshu Karate. And I ended up, I, would, I trained in karate for about 10 years before I got into my art now, which is jujitsu and uh, many other arts, Kali, Eskrima, things of that nature. Uh, my travels took me all over the place where I just started delving into any, anything that interested me as far as martial arts go. 
Uh, did you have any um, military or first responders in your extended family? No. No, I was the first of the first. <laughs> no military experience, but first responder experience for, for me. So what were you dreaming of becoming when you were school age? Was it law enforcement initially or was it something else? No, it was I wanted to be a stuntman since I was four years old. I, I don't even remember saying this, but my dad always told me, he's like, oh, you used to talk about being a stuntman. That every time they, uh, since they took me to Universal Studios and I saw the Western stunt show, I was just enamored by that and I wanted to be a stuntman more than anything. Yeah, I remember being inspired by the Fall Guy TV show as well. Oh, I love that show. <laughs> that was one of the best TV shows of all time. Lee Majors, you know, I'd followed him, Six Million Dollar Man, of course, and The Big Valley, but oh, the Fall Guy was. I was I was in love with Heather Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> so walk me through then, you know, what the career path was initially. How did you go from graduating high school to entering law enforcement? Graduated high school, uh, I had moved to Huntington Beach, and uh, I was really into bodybuilding by this time. I was a competitive bodybuilder. And uh, I was just looking for something to do. By this time, I had kind of given up on the stunt business. I didn't know how to go about it. And, uh, so I had a, a friend I was living with. I said, let's become cops. I said, we're both in great shape. We we're both yoke, these yoke guys. And so we came to Tulare County where I had family. Uh, both of us moved in with my mom and we enrolled, enrolled in the Tulare Kings County police Academy. And it was in a cat, an old school, academy that still had the you run six miles every single day it was rough it was super rough they don't have that anymore i don't think like everything has been uh anything that's been super tough has been taken taken away maybe lapd still has a tough academy i'm not sure but most academies just aren't what they used to be now we were talking before i hit record about um physical education i just had doug orchard on the show who made the uh the motivation factor about this incredible pe program in the 1950s and 60s in la sierra high school and you talked about your you know presidential patch that you got so what was your pe program like when you were going through the school ages and and how did that prepare you for that academy it was it well that prepared me for for life in general the president's patch i believe it was uh it was first, second, third, or, or third, fourth, fifth, sixth. I think it was third grade through sixth grade where you did the president's patch. I had four of them. And you had to run a mile in under six minutes. You had to do a certain amount of pull-ups, a certain amount of push-ups, a certain amount of sit-ups, all within a time frame. Um, when I was in sixth grade, I could do like 25 pull-ups. When I was in the sixth grade, I could do one-arm pull-ups in the sixth grade. It's amazing. And we had the, the, we had the monkey bars all over, like something that you fell off of, you could break your neck, something that you would never see a school anymore having. And uh, I mean, we'd be scrambling on bars, doing flips off of the, off of the bars, hanging by your legs. You were allowed to do all kinds of stuff that nowadays someone would go to jail for. <laughs> So it, the difference is it's not emphasized at all uh, anymore. Physical fitness is not emphasized 
whatsoever in school. Everybody's into just playing the video games and not doing anything outside. You know, I was I was not allowed inside when I was growing up. We were outside. We had to be home when the streetlights came on. Um, other than that, we were all over the place. Yeah, it was interesting listening to to Doug talking about it. I mean, the impact of that on community, on the national debt, because so much goes towards healthcare. I mean, there was there's nothing but you know um, gains from investing in physical education, nutrition at the school age. You know, and it's so heartbreaking oh, to see or, it now. Oh yeah, I mean that's when it's ingrained into you, uh, where it sticks with you. Now, just try to be out of shape when you're older and get into shape and stay into shape, it's, it's really hard to do if you have not had that ingrained into you. Um, you know, I would never have even uh, thought, how could I ever be overweight or out of shape? Uh, it was just something that was, uh, that did not happen. Not to say that it was looked down upon or anything of that nature. It's just, I didn't have any friends that were overweight. In, in those days, it just did not happen. And now it's, you got kids nine, 10 years old that are already pre-diabetic. Some of them diabetic live off of junk food. I didn't, I used to want junk food so bad because some of my friends were able to get it. My mom was like, Nope. And I used to cry. I go, I want the wonder bread. I want white bread until I tried it. Finally <laughs> said, "All right, fine, try it." I was like, "This sucks." I was like, "Oh, this uh, maybe I my mom knows something that I don't." <laughs> now, with the, I with, wasn't allowed to drink soda, anything of that nature. I was... No, that's ahead, no, no. Talk sorry, I, I kind of was talking over you there. No, my uh, my little boy has never liked soda. Thank goodness. I mean, partly, obviously, is us exposing him or not exposing it to him when he was younger, but. Um, even the carbonation he doesn't like, so that rules out a lot of soda, which is phenomenal. But you know, we'll, he'll have you know Chick Fil A sometimes, or and he likes lemonade, which is obviously sugary still. But um, oh, he's yeah, also a track athlete, and he does JROTC. You know what I mean? So there's there's a balance there. That's excellent. That's excellent. Well, I was going to say just for for reader, if you're going to have a soft drink, have a soft drink, one with sugar in it. Don't drink formaldehyde which is a spartame which is what a spartame is when it goes into your stomach it'll if it can clean a, a rusty toilet what do you think it's doing to insides of your body exactly exactly now with the bodybuilding this is another interesting um observation that i've seen even with my own eyes you know in some of the firefighter testing i think our generation one of the other challenges when it comes to strength and conditioning is we got away from the true um you know functional fitness that have been used for millennia literally body weight exercises and as you said monkey bars and ropes um and machines and 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 bodybuilding came into it and i i personally watched a lot of yoked dudes fail out of firefighter selection because it wasn't functional the way that they had trained. How did how was your experience yeah. with the fight the police academy once you were yoked and you kind of walked through the door? Well, I had always remained functional. Um, I had always been into body weight calisthenics from the get go. I mean, Jack Lalane, who I met, uh, was one of my idols, and that guy could do. Just, to, I mean, he could do a thousand push-ups, and he was yoked. Um, I wanted to be like like him. I wanted to be completely functional and keep whatever I could with body weight. Like at 55 years old, I can still do 20 pull-ups. 
And uh, I can't do one arms anymore. It's just a little too hard on the joints at, at my age, but I can still do 20 pull-ups. And it's because of how that was ingrained into me. Climbing rope, uh, pull-ups, sit-ups, push-ups. A big portion of my training regimen still to this day is body weight calisthenics. Big portion of it. So it, it didn't affect me at all because once I got into the weight training aspect of it, uh, my body just took off. I mean, I, I'd made it to a national level in bodybuilding. Uh, I had more like the Frank Zane look than the Arnold Schwarzenegger look. I wasn't huge. I just had really good symmetry. And it's probably because of the way I trained all my life. I was never the muscle bound guy. You know, I can do the splits and I was able to do flips and back handsprings and, you know, anything that a gymnast can do. You learn that in martial arts when you're growing up, kind of the showy stuff of the martial arts films. You know, as a kid, you're always, ah, I got to learn that. Even though it had no use in a real fight, but you didn't care at that age. <laughs> you wanted to look like the guys on the movie. Yeah. No, and I found that with my taekwondo Um you know, I, I competed and won national titles, but then again, I've told this story many times. I would go into a boxing gym or a Muay Thai gym and get my ass handed to me and go, oh, okay. So I'm actually not that good, <laughs> even though I've got trophies in my house. Um, you know, this stuff doesn't seem to work very well when it comes to, you know, increasing levels of contact. However, later on when I got into to stunts, I realized Taekwondo, you know, Wushu are amazing if you're in the stunt world doing stuff oh, on stage absolutely. and screen. Absolutely. And I forgot to tell you, I grew up as a boxer as well. My, my grandfather was a boxer in the army and uh, he was a, he was a pastor in the military, but was also a boxer, he boxed in college and, and the army. So I never competed in boxing, but I did learn how to box. And if there were neighborhood problems back in the day or problems with my cousins, we would put the gloves on and duke it out with the parents watching and nowadays, you just can't do that anymore. And, you know, we didn't have the problems they have now. You know, we would duke it out, and then we'd be friends again. Yeah, that's what's so sad is, you know, you see back home in the UK, you know, knives are pulled here in the US, guns are pulled. And, you know, as it, as you said, if people went one-on-one, -on -one, and obviously, you know, assuming that one wasn't just bullying and just wanted to beat the shit out of the other kid, then you settle your dispute. You got maybe a flat nose and <laughs> bruised ribs, but you live to see another day. And sadly, a lot of the violence that you witnessed. And you learned, and you learned, learned a valuable lesson. That's what I, I when I was in law enforcement and with SWAT, uh, I told everybody we need to put the gloves on because you guys need to know what it feels like to get punched in the face. And everyone's like, what? Like, yeah, everyone needs to get punched in the face. Because everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. So we all made sure everyone got punched in the face, women included. So it's a great way to train. Everyone, contact sports are so important, especially if you're like with, uh, with law enforcement, things of that nature. There's not enough training out there. Uh, why there's so many problems in law enforcement. People are getting in out of and over their over their heads and having to go to different weapons because they can't. They're either so out of shape or they've never been trained on any true hand to hand that's going to actually do them any good. And again, this goes back all the way back to childhood of uh, being in shape your whole life 
and not having to be out of shape going into the police academy and barely pass, maybe with shin splints and all kinds of aches and pains. And it's uh, such a bad experience for these people. They're like, I'm never working out again. And they're not made to, which they should be made to in law enforcement, especially. And they just get fat and out of shape. And uh, it's just makes for a bad, (laughs) looks bad, looks bad, completely looks bad. Yeah. Well, it leads to a lot of, uh, you know, either dead police officers or dead civilians, depending on how the the scene goes. Uh, Absolutely. So with that, then you talked about 10 years in karate. Had you switched to jujitsu prior to entering law enforcement? No, uh, entering law enforcement, that was the first time I had learned about wrist locks and, and things of that nature. And I took to it immediately because I was so strong. And again, they say you're not, you don't need strength in Aikido or Aikijitsu, but, uh, I'm, I, I will beg to differ on that. You, you need strength in martial arts, uh, period. And anybody that's a martial artist, that is a true martial artist is going to be strong. So when they say you don't need strength, uh, I don't see where that comes from because it's strength is such an important factor in anything that has to do with uh, physicality, fighting, you name it. Even jujitsu practitioners, you know, it's known as the gentle way, but it's not, doesn't mean that you can be weak and still be effective. You, you have to be strong and in shape in order to be effective. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, the philosophy is even if you need less strength to, you know, use some of these techniques, if you are strong with it, you're then even more lethal. So why would you not be as strong as possible? That's I tell people that it's based on leverage and physics. But if you get two people of the same skill set, the stronger, more conditioned person is going to win. Plain and simple. So why not try to be the strongest most conditioned person that you can be absolutely well with that then so what did DTAC look like when you entered law enforcement okay well the strength element I said this was this was a a high stress academy Uh, you had to do push-ups pull-ups sit-ups you had to jump over a six-foot wall you had to do rope climbs you had to do a timed mile and a half Um, and we did a lot of uh, martial arts training as far as uh, baton and handcuffing and, you know, wrist locks and, uh, any type of control holds and things of that nature. I would probably say it was close to what you would consider Aikijitsu. Um, not basically Aikido, a little rougher form of Aikido, kind of a jujitsu Aikido mix. And that was my first, uh, introduction into that type of, that type of training. Then of course, after being in several street fights, you kind of learn real quick <laughs> what works and what doesn't. Now, have you seen um, in your you know your time in martial arts and, and combat uh, an element of Aikido work? Because I remember I, I did Aikido years and years and years ago. I was in my teens. And it was when Steven Seagal was really big. And the people I trained with were awesome. And I really enjoyed the training. But when I look back a few years later after doing some Muay Thai and you know, even further on in Jiu-Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I struggle to see application really with most of it. Now, you know, I know a lot of the route was, was from you know the, the swordsmanship as well. Um, with you having that training for quite a while, 
um, you know, which elements of Aikido do you think still had application when tested under pressure? Well, for, for starters, okay, Aikido in general, it's almost like a religion. Um, and there's, there's meaning behind everything, even their roles and their falls. There's, there's meridians that you're hitting when you do your break falls and your rolls that are, that are uh, keeping certain nerves in your body awakened. Uh, it's not just a matter of, of taking an opponent and taking a strength against them and, and moving it. But I see what you're saying. I would say joint locks, especially if you have grip strength like I have, are extremely effective. Um, any type of, uh, any type of off balance. I mean, it's, like I said, uh, I don't, I've never had any, uh, formal Aikido training. I have had, had Aikijitsu training and Aikijitsu is more what Seagal does than Aikido. Um, from what I've, from what I understand. But, uh, again, I've heard, I mean, there's the stories of Gene LeBell and, and, uh, and Steven Seagal, I don't know if you ever heard that story, but no, please tell it. <laughs> it. It didn't go. I wasn't there, but a friend of mine was. And basically, I forget what set it was on, but there was a conversation and Gene LaBelle was there and Seagal was there. And Seagal said, was introducing Gene. He said, he's the only person on this set that can kick my ass. And he said, hey, Gene, we're doing, trying to do something here. Help us figure it out. So Gene came over there, and he goes, he has me uh, from behind. And so Gene grabs Skull from behind. He goes, ah, I put you in something like this. And so all goes, well, you're still open. And pops Gene in the groin, a light groin tap. And Gene just clamps down and chokes Skull unconscious right there on the set. And... I don't want to mention my buddy's name, uh, but I had a friend that was right there when it happened, and he said it, he was out. And, you know, Sakal came to, fired Gene. The whole stunt crew said they were going to walk if Gene walked. And it turned into this feud <laughs> that is still going on to this day because Sakal basically says it never happened. And, I've spoken to Gene about it and I've spoken to the other person that was there that witnessed it and they said absolutely happened. So. <laughs> the moral of the story, never touch another man's junk without permission. Hey, and you know, I mean, <laughs> one of my, one of my idols of all time, Bruce Lee. Okay. He said this about Gene LaBelle. He said, Gene LaBelle is the most dangerous man alive. And that was a quote from Bruce Lee. Bruce uh, was taught by Gene as far as uh, the grappling element of Jun Fan because he realized uh, that it was lacking. And I can tell you that story too of how that came to be. Please, please. <laughs> Bruce, again, I was, I was probably not even born yet or I was just a young, young kid. But it was on the set of the Green Hornet and there was a some kind of issue bruce was not very happy and was kind of going off and so the stunt coordinator called in gene to calm him down and gene walked in and picked bruce up and had him in a kind of like a body lock 
And Bruce is screaming, put me down or I'll kill you. And Gene's like, I can't put me, I can't put you down. You'll kill me. <laughs> and Gene finally got him calmed down. And after that, and they, they kind of did a portrayal in this in, in Quentin Tarantino's movie where Bruce Lee fights the stuntman. And that's where that came from was, was Bruce and Gene going at it. Um, I can't remember the name of the movie uh, with Brad Pitt and Leonardo oh. DiCaprio. I don't know why I'm blanking on that one now. Um, I, I blanked on it too. I, I, I don't know why I blanked on that. But later Bruce realized that his system was lacking because it needed grappling. And so he started training with Gene. And after training with Gene, that's when the, it came out as Gene LaBelle is the most dangerous man alive. And I completely agree with them. Once upon Gene a time come, in Hollywood. Yes. Once upon a time in Hollywood. I don't think I've seen you know, that one. Gene, I'm going to have to watch it now. Oh yeah. You got to see it. Got to see it. It's a great movie. But you know, Gene LaBelle was a catch wrestler, catch as catch can trained with Carl Gotch, another idol of mine. And, uh, you know, Gene was judo. They call him judo Gene LaBelle, but he was also a professional wrestler back when, wrestling was still real uh there were still shoot matches what they called shoots and then they were the fake matches what they called works all wrestlers were still real grapplers back in those days and uh so there were still matches that were that were real matches called shoots and gene was one of those guys that still fought in those and uh he was known as an arm breaker you know, he, he got an award from uh, Carl Gotch. And Carl Gotch is the god of wrestling, basically, with submission wrestling. And it is the Sadistic Bastard Award. And that award on Gene's wall is his most prized possession. <laughs> because to get that from Carl Gotch, that he was the god of wrestling, you had to be so mean in the ring that people were just absolutely afraid of you. And this is what, you know, you know, gosh, would train people to be. It's like, you have to be an animal in the ring. And uh, so when you see professional wrestlers nowadays, it's just not the same as, as how it used to be. Uh, guys that trained in, in Wigan, England uh, at the snake pit. And that's where catches catch can came from. I think Lancashire, England is where it originated and it made it to North America. And all of the circus strongmen, this is where it all comes from with my lineage, um, they picked it up because these carnival wrestlers would be going up against all comers. And they, uh, if you lasted a certain amount of time in the ring with the, with the strongman, you got a certain amount of money. And these catch wrestlers, they would come up with their own, what they called hooks, submission techniques, so they could get these guys submitted as quickly as possible. So they wouldn't lose any money because if you lost money, you weren't going to you weren't going to be uh, lasting very long in the circus. The wrestlers would come up with these submission techniques, which were known as hooks. They called them hooks. So they could submit these uh, challengers as quickly as possible because you basically didn't uh, want to lose any matches or you wouldn't be with that circus very much longer. And these guys were doing this to, so they could survive and eat. And so they would, they would perform feats of strength to kind of bring the crowds in. 
And uh, that's where the art of this old-time circus strongman comes from. And uh, they were all professional wrestlers in North America. This is sort of the, the history of strongman in North America is history of catches catch can submission wrestling which a lot of people don't know and it's really interesting history no it is i didn't know that it's funny even eric eric polson who connected us who was on the show but he, he kind of you know educated me as well on i think even in pride i think it was that, that you had again you had the catch and you had the work and i didn't realize yeah. that there was an element of um theatrics even in that world back then oh yeah well Back in the 1930s is where it started to switch. Okay, up uh, be, before the 30s, it was all it was all shoots, it was all real. And but by this time, a lot of these uh, challengers they were training and wrestling as well. And some of these matches were lasting like an hour and a half to two hours long, which was. I mean, can you imagine being in a grappling match for two hours? No, <laughs> not even close. The, the, the conditioning those guys had was amazing. But anyways, it started to get boring. And at this time, wrestling was our national, national pastime. It wasn't baseball. It was wrestling. That's uh, why you have some of these states that are so into wrestling. The history goes back to colonial times. Um, every, you know, every city had a wrestler. And, uh, you know, when catch made it to the United States, it took off like wildfire, way more popular than it was in Europe because Greco Roman was more popular in Europe and the catch just didn't take off there. But when it came here, it really took off. But anyway, so some of the, uh, circus groups broke off and said, we're going to do the work matches where it's still real holds, real wrestling, but it's going to have some acrobatics and theatrics combined, and it's going to be a lot more entertaining. And so they would have those matches, and then still, like up into the 1950s, I think when was when the last world championship catch match, I think uh, Lou Thies was the last world champion uh, catch wrestler. Um, that, was the, that was the end of it. But now catch is making its comeback. It's, uh, there are new world championships. There's, there's matches all over the place. They're inviting Brazilian jiu-jitsu the whole bit because it's, it is similar art. Um, it's just no gi. But yeah, a lot of people don't realize that, that back in the day, those were all real wrestlers and you would not want to mess with one of them. Today, you have some of them that are real and some of them that are just doing the doing the choreography, so to speak. And a lot of the old school wrestlers did not like that. Like Billy Robinson, if he was wrestling against a wrestler that wasn't a wrestler, that guy might end up getting hurt, even if it was a, uh, a work match, just because they weren't real wrestlers. Kind of, kind of happened like that. So just because the mat match was was a work didn't mean that one of them wasn't going to get hurt. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes sense. It's interesting, though, with, with the whole, you know, modern wrestling. I remember watching Mike Tyson fight Frank Bruno when I was a tiny kid. And my oh, sister's yeah. boyfriend um, took me to go see it. And it was before satellite television in England. So we went to this one venue and they had, you know, the big screen and everything. And before the fight, 
these dudes with long hair and spandex were like leaping off, you know, ropes in the ring and hitting each other with chairs. And even as a little kid, I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's funny because then you kind of fast forward and obviously, you know, as you get a bit older, you go, okay, it's fake, it's choreographed. But then when you get in the stunt world, you almost do a, a complete 180 and go, holy shit, to be 250 pounds and do some of these, these, these aren't wrestlers, but they are absolutely high level stunt performers. Oh my God. And I mean, they're taking hits. You have to be so damn tough to be a wrestler of, uh, even to do a work match, the stuff that they're doing and with the weight and the uh, body weight and the control, like with a pile driver, you know how easy you can break someone's neck with a move like that. Um, it's absolutely amazing to watch and it just even, it gets wilder and wilder and wilder to, uh, see what these guys are capable of doing is amazing. You know, I watch it just for that because I appreciate the fact of being a stuntman and taking falls and taking hits. I know what it feels like. And so do you, you know, there were, there were times where I was like, this, this might be a hospital trip and still have to do it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're not going to feel good. <laughs> yeah i mean they're all good until they go wrong and that's the problem like I, I did a stunt show a pirate stunt show and one of my fellow the guy, the guy did the same role as me on a different night um there's a, a sword fight 30 feet in the air and on a mast and then when you transition oh, yeah. from that you end up um getting shot from the bird's nest and doing like a not a high fall but a low fall like 20 foot fall um anyway on the way down he got his foot caught ended up falling bouncing off the crow's nest missing the mat and landing on the concrete 20 feet below and actually probably more like yeah 25 feet because it was in a pit um and, yeah well he, he fractured his back he ended up luckily recovering i think he's eating acting or stunts now in, in california but yeah i mean that's the problem like you said just if everything goes right it's not that painful not that that unsafe but my god the moment you know a sword goes through an eyeball or whatever then then it can be from uh. nothing to absolute catastrophic that that happened to me, sort in the eyeball. Really? Well, when we get into the talking of the stunts, my my first. Am I getting ahead of you at all? Or no, no, no. Doing... We can bounce like a like a damn ping pong ball. It's fine. <laughs> okay, excellent. Well, my I when I moved here from I moved here from Texas, uh, back from Texas. I was decided to be a stunt man, and uh, Paul Stater, who was a famous stunt man, he doubled Errol Flynn and. He was also a boxing coach and a fencing coach. He had a stunt school in Malibu and I joined his stunt school and moved to Los Angeles. I was living in my truck and uh, was learning from him. And now I just lost my train of thought of where this was going. Sword in the eye. Oh, after I completed stunt school, I, he got me an audition at Universal Studios. And so I auditioned for the Conan show because I was yoked and, and uh, had great, uh, you know, I, I was a good gymnast and I can do all that kind of stuff. So I was okay with swords. I was still learning. Uh, Anthony DeLongas, I don't know if you ever heard of him. I have, yes. He, uh, okay, well, he's, he's my sword sensei and my bullwhip sensei. We'll get in more of that. I've trained with them for close to 20 years. Uh, that's where we met. And I became part of the Conan show. And uh, one of the swords 
these were aluminum aircraft, but a chip of it came off and embedded in my eye. And I was just like watery eye, watery eye. I didn't know what was wrong. And it was like for day or a couple of days and my eye was swollen shut. I finally went to the eye doctor and he had to put some nummy drops on my eye. And he's like, yeah, you got a piece of metal stuck in your eye. They had to drill it out while I was still awake. They just put the numbing drops in and they're like, with this drill and I could feel the pressure, but I couldn't feel it. What they were doing, they were picking this metal out of my eye. And so, yeah, it does happen. That kind of stuff. And live shows. Oh my God, you have to be in shape to do live shows. You know, you're doing stunts every six shows a day and doing stunts that you would get, 500 to a thousand dollars at an adjustment for doing in film and you're doing it for 60 bucks a show yep that's exactly <laughs> it yeah the pirate show was an hour and a half and they put like a whole pre-show in and you know yeah i mean you were sword fights and falls and you know tramp and routines rope, rope and, swings and, mm -hmm. i i totally know the show you're talking about yeah i totally know what you're talking about it was a great freaking show but yeah no did the conan show i think i worked there for two or three years up until when it closed and uh, remained a student of Anthony's. Uh, he's the one that got me involved in, with the Inasano Academy because he was trained by Guru Dan. And uh, I was learning knife and sword and bullwhip from him. And then I started meeting other people like Eric and Chad Stahelski that were full instructors through Guru Dan and started hanging out with them and training with them. And that's when my martial arts training really went through the roof and i was already a black belt this time in in jujitsu but uh japanese jujitsu but i started learning the the shudo wrestling from eric and it was brutal the leg locks and joint locks were just so brutal i was like this is something i want to freaking get into but i never competed but uh i did learn a lot from eric i trained with him probably off and on for at least a two or three years um he lived on the coast and i lived in the valley so i didn't get there every single day but when i did i would train with him we worked on a film called blood sport three with daniel bernhardt and he and i after a 10-hour day of filming we would hit the mat and roll for another two or three hours and uh it was eric that first got me exposed to shudo which later i found out was catch and then the history of catch is when I started learning about the circus strongman. And that's when I was enamored by that. And I was like, I come hell or high water. I'm going to be one of these guys. And I hooked up with Dennis Rogers, the grandmaster strongman, Dennis Rogers. And uh, who has a direct lineage to, I don't know if you ever heard of the mighty Adam, Joseph Greenstein. I don't know if I recognize that name or if it's from the cartoons. I want to say there was an old cartoon based on him. Well, the cartoon, the mighty Adam was, was based off of him and the mighty Adam, he was five, four, 145 pounds. And he's the godfather of the modern day strongman. He's the one really? that came up with, with all of the driving the nail through the board with a fist, um, biting a chain in half, uh, just all kinds of feats. And he was also a catch wrestler, wrestle, a carnival wrestler under the name of Kid Greenstein. And uh, that's the lineage I come from. So it went from 
Joseph Greenstein, the mighty Adam passed down to slim, the Hammerman Farman passed down to Dennis Rogers. And then I'm one of Dennis's students. I'm one of many Dennis's students, but, uh, that's where I learned all the stuff that I do. Uh, Strongman wise. Beautiful. Well, I'd love to get into that in a second, but just before we do, before I forget, you had the jujitsu training. You were in law enforcement for a while. What element did Carly bring in? I've had some people on the show that talked about Carly having great application in the special operations community, but obviously we're talking about killing rather than detaining, so slightly different skill set. Um, what did that bring to you, you know, in uniform and out of uniform? Uh, flow. Kali brings flow. The flow drills, that's what I got out most of from Kali, were the flow drills. If you learn flow drills and you learn enough of them, now you're playing a game of chess against someone with a knife. And neither one of you are touching each other with the knife because your muscle memory has been ingrained into moving through these motions. And so when it comes to actual hand-to-hand combat it's like doing sticky hands in wing chung you're just able to move with the person and and not get hit and then finally find an opening and uh throw the person and slam them on the concrete and the fight is over with which i quickly learned in law enforcement as a viable technique <laughs> you slam someone on the concrete the fight is over about 98% of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. That's the, the one negative I've found from a lot of my jujitsu training with amazing people. But there's a, there's a tendency. I think it's just purely space. You know, it's very popular. Um, you know, we're in these smaller spaces compared to like a giant, you know, planet fitness or something. Um, and so a lot of times you're starting on your knees. And I think that is the the big kind of hole in the game if you just start rolling on the ground as you're missing that grappling element. And like you said, that can be to your advantage or it's your disadvantage if you don't know what you're doing. Yes. No, and it, I, they don't – and you can see the the guys that, that train wrestling and judo, um, you can see the difference in the competition because they all start on their feet in, in BJJ competition. But they don't train it. They don't train it enough. Eric does because he does the combat submission wrestling. He mixes it all together. He mixes Muay Thai with Shudo, with Cash, with BJJ. And I think his is one of the most complete systems out there to this day. And that's why he's so popular with the MMA crowd. Not, I mean, he's also an icon in the business. Absolute icon in the business. But um, his system is probably one of the most complete systems out there. And he makes sure that you learn all the throws and the takedowns because if you don't train it and, you know, someone's going to shoot on you and uh, get a leg and take you and take you down. Or if they're really good, be able to lock you up and get a, a very good throw on you. So that's which, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff comes from Greco, Greco Roman wrestling is above the waist lockups and throws. If you ever seen, I've seen videos of guys in street fights that get suplexed and oh my God, have you ever seen any of those oh, videos it's, online? It's nauseating. I hate watching it because I know the damage is doing. Watch. Oh my God. It's just like, oh my God. Okay. That fight's over. <laughs> that fight is over. Um, 
So you can see how effective even Greco can be when it comes to a street fight. You know, everything is viable. Even even uh, Taekwondo, everything has a piece of the pie that is viable. And you should learn everything that you possibly can from anybody that would be willing to teach you. And if it works for you, keep it. And if it doesn't work for you, throw it away. But uh, you, you can get something out of every art. Everything has something to give for somebody. Even if it's breathing or meditation, uh, something you can get out of it. So, and again, I've never trained in Taekwondo, but I did start learning a lot more fancy kicks when I started getting into the stunt business and hanging out with guys like Brad Martin and Chad Stahelski, who is the John Wick director now. Um, those guys were amazing to train with. And we would do kick workouts that were two hours long. They were just, you're done with that. You are feeling it. <laughs> yeah, I can relate completely. I used to fight for uh, my university. And when I was there, my two sports science professors that I was, you know, academically studying under were also the taekwondo coaches. So, you know, there was yeah. no missing <laughs> missing training because you were in the class that, that, like, right before you had to train. So, yeah, and it was exactly that. It was, you know, hour and a half, two hours of just kicking the, the targets and drills and footwork and calisthenics. And, yeah, it was uh, it was brutal, but it was it, – it, I mean, it worked. That's the thing. That stuff works. You get better. It's that simple. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't know if you ever heard of the name Gary Daniels. Oh, yeah. I used to watch all his films, Fist of the North Star okay. and all of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was in Fist of the North Star. Oh, really? Yeah, I was doubling Costas Mandalore, and there's a good story here. We were on a marble floor, very slippery, and they had just pulled Costas out. He was getting tired, so I went in to double him, and uh, there was a steady cam operator behind me, and he slipped and bumped into my back and pushed me in to a full... Uh, full speed, full contact, spinning hook, heel kick with combat boots on that landed on my face and shattered my nose, broke my cheekbone, broke my orbital uh, eye socket. I was gushing blood. I mean, everybody was covered in my blood. They had to rush me to the hospital. And Jerry was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I said, it wasn't your fault, dude. I said, someone pushed me. And I said, but. I'm still on my feet. <laughs> I didn't go out. out. <laughs> <laughs> you kicked like a girl, Gary up. Daniels. <laughs> and I showed up. Uh, Rocket Capella was the stunt coordinator. I showed up the next day to work with a cast on my face because I was supposed to do an air ram into a into a wall. And Rocky looks at me and he goes, "No." I said, "Dude, it's, I, I got to work. I got to work." And I guess by doing that, it. Uh, feel the reputation that I wasn't a wimpy uh, guy. <laughs> he still wouldn't let me do it. Everyone did give me a round of applause. And uh, that was where I met Chad Stahelski and Eric Poulton, because they both worked on that show. And, uh, but yeah, that was my big injury. I didn't have any worse injuries than that in the stunt business. Well, I think Gary, Gary was a champion kickboxer, wasn't he, before he got into the film? So it wasn't like oh, he was yeah, just a yeah. show martial artist, you know, like a no, form no. specialist. He, he had trained with Winston Omega, who is a legitimate Shaolin master, grew up in a temple. 
And this guy had trained his knuckles and his shins. His knuckles, the two main knuckles are one knuckle on his hands. He trains on steel ball bearing bags. And if you get hit by him, you're done. And his shins were so conditioned. Oh, my God. Yeah, I would not want to tangle with Gary Daniels. I would have to take him to the ground as fast as possible. One guy I would not want to tangle with. No way. Yeah, he's a real deal. Real deal. Absolutely. Well, I used to read a lot about him in the, the martial artist uh, magazines in England. And I remember, like the, like you said, the, the Makawara, the bags with the, the ball bearings. And they progressively yep. work from sand to gravel to, to ball bearings. Yep. And yeah, I mean... That's uh, <laughs> that's dedication, but I mean, it paid off. Oh, no. Up, you know, going really far. It did, and it opened up another avenue of training for myself with Iron Palm, and uh, that's how I'll, I was first exposed to that and then went through the Iron Palm conditioning with the, uh, the same bag of beans, bag of gravel, bag of steel. Now I train on steel shot, and it makes your hands so heavy. Uh, Wolf's law, basically, when you start breaking down the, the bone and the tendon and the fascia, it heals back way more dense than it was before. And so if I slap something, it it's a hard hit. So I'll do, you know, I break bricks by slapping them. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen any of my video stuff that I do, but if anybody's interested, go to TikTok uh, at Scott McElroy 73. And that's where all my videos of my strongman stuff are up. They can check it out. Brilliant. Now, I saw some of the ones on YouTube as well. Same. Yeah. Uh, well, there's two ones on YouTube. One of younger years, close to 14, 15 years ago. And then there's stuff that I still do today. Um, it depends on what page you're on. So if I have gray hair, <laughs> 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 if I'm, Dark haired, it's the old stuff. All right. Well, well, speaking of that, then, so you mentioned again before about the the roots of uh, catch wrestling being embedded in the circus world. So, how did you find yourself uh, walking down the path of circus strongman and and all the kind of um, the feats that are involved with that? <clears throat> well, I witnessed it in person, and I was like, "How could this be real?" Because I tried it as part of the audience and I'm a big strong guy at the time I probably had 19 or 20 inch arms and tried to bend a 60 penny nail and I gave it everything I had and I couldn't even put a kink in that thing and I watched this strong man bend it like it was butter and I was like how is this possible I was just literally enamored I was like there's no sleight of hand I was right here I he took the same nail and he I handed it to him and I watched him and he just bent it like it was butter. I was like, come hell or high water, I am going to learn this no matter what. And it took a long time searching. I would read, I would find things. I finally was hooked up with Dennis Rogers. He had a, what was called Strongman University. And I sent him some stuff. Uh, I showed him what I could do. And he said, you know, I'm going to make you my, my first student. It wasn't his first student. He had other guys that he had trained. But as far as Strongman University goes, uh, he sent me a bunch of his DVDs that he had out. And I started 
step by step doing it. And, uh, you know, it was very progressive in nature and it took me a couple of years of, you know, every day training, I was doing something, either breathing exercises or meditation or the actual stuff itself. And, uh, you know, the day I bent my first 60 penny nail, which is the, that is the rite of passage for a circus strongman. You have to do a 60 penny nail and which takes anywhere from 250 to 300 pounds of force on your wrist to, to bend those things down. And, you know, now I do it like it's nothing like the guy that I witnessed firsthand. And so to watch people's faces, when I take the biggest guy in the crowd and bring him out and they can't even put a kink in it and then you bend it like it's nothing and people are just like how and it, it was such an impact on myself i'm sure it has impact on others that's why i like to do it so much now what was different so you did you have martial arts training you've done calisthenics you've done bodybuilding what was so different about the training that allows these men and women to perform these incredible feats well, tendon-wise, okay, you've got to train differently. You've got to train your tendons. And to bend steel, you have to bend steel. And you have to learn uh, a progression and something you have to figure out for yourself because everybody's different. And so you have to buy a lot of material and sit there, okay, first off, there's an amount of conditioning that you have to do where you're not going to injure yourself. And so... Like I got to a point where I could lever a 12 pound sledgehammer with a 32 inch handle, taking over my face and lowering the head down to a horizontal position with my arm out to the side and pushing that back up, which is almost 400 inch pounds we're talking about uh, with the, at the end of the handle. <clears throat> Once I could do that, I was like, okay, I have enough strength. I can do this nail without getting injured, yet I still couldn't do the nail. So I was like, okay, there's, it's because the human body, okay, we have, merid, we have meridians that shut down because certain pressure is applied and a certain amount of pain is applied and the, the next uh, neuron or thinks neuron up says, no, you're going to injure yourself and shuts your strength down. And so you have to be able to push past that in order to give it your all. And that's basically what it is. There's so much pain involved in bending a 60-penny nail. You think your hands and fingers are going to snap. And in order to bend that, you have to just say, okay, they're going to snap, but I'm going to do it. And all of a sudden, boom, it goes. And you're like, oh, my God, and I'm not injured. Like, how did I do that? Well, it was because it was all or nothing. And so you learn how to apply 100% of your strength. And it's kind of why apes are so much stronger than humans. They have less neurons than we do. So it's kind of all or nothing when they grab onto something. Uh, we're pretty much the same makeup. They might have a little more fast twitch than us, but yet they're you know 1.5 to 2 times the strength. And that is why they have less neurons. It's all or nothing. And you have to train your brain to the all or nothing, which is a huge carryover into martial arts. Because in the early days, everybody went through this training. 
in martial arts. You didn't even start training until your conditioning process was finished. So all of these early karate people and early kung fu people all had grips of, of the circus strongman because that's where it comes from. It all comes from uh, India and Asia, Damo that brought this type of meditation to the Shaolin monks and this kind of uh, inner strength. As martial arts progressed in the United States, it got watered down because no one wants to put the time and effort into doing this. And it kind of got lost. And now it's making a comeback. And so that's my uh, contribution to the martial arts is I teach people how to condition themselves uh, and how to use their, uh, to think past the pain, to block the pain out be able to complete these feats, which if it's applied to a martial art technique, now you're talking about a, a snapped limb or <laughs> you know whatever. Well, it's interesting what you said about the ape too, because I bet the other thing the ape doesn't have is self-doubt. And you think about yeah. when the bar is set lower and lower and lower, as we are children, as we talked about, your childhood is very different than a lot of children that are in this generation. Um, yeah. To go all the way back to that physical you know, uh, pain tolerance, but also the conditioning level, but then the belief. And, and you see it manifested over and over again. And it, when, oh. when Roger Bannister beat the four-minute mile, people started beating the four-minute mile. You see this over and over yeah, when and you before, watch someone and before else. before then, no, no one came close to it. Yeah. Until it, was, until it happened. And the same thing with, with strongman. Okay, people are doing stuff now that, I mean, it's just, incredible what they're doing compared to what they did back in the day. And I'm just your basic guy. I'm not one of these top world class guys at all. I'm, you know, I, people ask me, they're like, Oh my God, you must be best in the world. And I'm like, no, I said, I'm a pebble in an ocean full of boulders when it comes to guys out there. They're so be far beyond me. It's not even funny, which is downright scary. Downright scary because I do the I do the basics of what the old timers did. No no basic person can do them. Uh, then you have the guys that are just world class that could crush you, absolutely crush you. Downright scary. You see that even in CrossFit. I think if I'm not mistaken, the CrossFit of like ten years ago, Annie Thor's daughter. I think they were snatching, the women were snatching 135 pounds. And that was like, you know, mind blowing for us now. Fast yeah, forward now to today. Yeah. I mean, they're throwing, you know, what, 180 plus over their head. And probably most of the, the good athletes in most CrossFit gyms can, can use 135 now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the, the world class females are throwing, God, I've seen close to, I want to say close to a 300 pound something close to that like world-class females are throwing weight that you just cannot believe no it's incredible and then you look back to the kind of prejudice of yesteryear with all oh, women yeah they, they they can't you know they're not strong they should stay in the kitchen like dude that has been so so reprogrammed these days i think there was oh, one yeah. one good thing that came out of this this last you know couple of decades it was definitely that mma crossfit some of these other areas and they were obviously phenomenal females up to that point, they just weren't given any exposure. And with the camera being, you know, put on some of these 
female warriors, it's really made people realize how ridiculous that philosophy was from the beginning. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I know some females that you know, guys are like, ah, you know, especially cops. There's a lot of this and a lot of cops are the machismo type that don't believe women belong in law enforcement. And I'm like, I know some women that would take you out in a second. They're like, no way. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, without a doubt. Without yep. a doubt, I was like, I was like, because I can take you out in a second, and there's women that can take me out, hands down. Absolutely, you know, yeah. Lucia Riker, <laughs> Lucia Riker, one of them. I mean, there's some women that are scary, freaking good MMA fighters. Absolutely, I had a woman, Kristen Rhodes, who's the world's strong. I think she was at America's strongest woman. I think by technicality, she wasn't the world's strongest woman at that point because of labeling and organizations. But yeah, I mean, you know, and she. Her husband is in law enforcement, um, but she, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the strongest women on the planet. So sure as shit, outlifts <laughs> me by probably a hundred times. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And you know, you get females like Ronda Rousey, trained by Jean Bell. Yep. Okay, I guarantee you, Ronda is a sadistic bastard in the ring. She goes out there to freaking hurt people. You do not want to get in a ring with Ronda Rousey. Yeah. No, and you can see it. You can see it. I mean, I, I, di I didn't love her in the ring because of that fact, because I love the the martial artist element, that respect um, you know, yeah. the, the, around it as well. And I think, you know, it, it's easy to get dragged into that playing the villain. Um, and, sure. you know, that's not sure. the best thing, I think, in the martial arts specifically. But as, a, as an athlete, she was phenomenal. Oh, Phenomenal, phenomenal athlete. And I, I, I should say something. I mean, she's a great human being as well. I don't mean she's trying to end someone's career. There are people out there that try to do career-ending injuries, which I do not believe in. It's a sport, people. It's a sport. You know, I, I go out there and snap someone's tendon purposely. I don't, I don't believe that at all. You got to go out there with a sense of sportsmanship. And I don't think she's like that at all. She's fantastic. It's just she goes she goes out there to do business, definitely. And I would put her up against most guys. She would take them out. Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, then, so so I want to kind of get into the stunt world a little bit more. But before we do, you you left law enforcement and then went back in. So with this, the strength training that you had with the the catch wrestling, the kali, the jujitsu, now the circus and, and the iron palm. Of all that giant toolbox have you got, um, you know, you, you've obviously forged a pretty formidable physical opponent to anyone that's resisting arrest. One thing that I hear from a lot of, um, your kind of community is the, the guests that are in physically great shape that also, you know, usually are great martial artists as well, usually report on going hands on less because they're projecting that confidence because physically they look like, they would be a challenge for anyone trying to resist. What was your experience in your career? Did you find that that was as much of a deterrent as it was something that you had to use? Well, okay. I, when I went back, uh, I was only on patrol for a year and then I went with a gang unit and, and SWAT. And so I was dealing with a lot different people than just your normal average citizen. But, for people that only respect power, which is the gang mentality, it didn't take long before they said, don't mess with that guy. Because 
there were some there were some broken fingers and some broken wrists and a couple of KOs slamming on the pavement. And then they didn't mess with me anymore after that at all. Um, and I would go around to gang neighborhoods and I would have pizza night where I would buy pizza for the kids. And the parents actually respected me. Um, you know, they knew if they did wrong, I was going to come after them, but uh, they didn't give me any, any uh, slack. They didn't try to punk me or anything like that after it was very quickly that, uh, you know, like I said, a couple of slams on the pavement. They were like, Ooh, no one wants to get slammed on the pavement. <clears throat> so it, it came in huge. It was everything. It was everything. I, I would love to put a post certified program together to say, you can do this in a year if you properly train and it will make all of your Aikajitsu techniques work. All your control holds will work if you gain this type of uh, strength. But in order to get people to do it, that's a whole other animal. Because most cops don't train. They get off work. They go home. They're family-oriented. And that's it. You know, you do have some law enforcement that are totally into training. They're into BJJ. And you can totally see the difference on the street for sure. But yeah, if someone were to go through uh, my conditioning program, hands down, it would be a night and day difference as far as control goes. And you are, you are correct. The persona that you put out, people, people, the, the wolves can see it. Wolves look for weak. You know, in, in the wild, Wolves don't prey on a strong animal. They take the weakest of the group and gang up on it. That's the gang member mentality as well. So I want to get to the gangs in a second and get your perspective on a couple of things. But before I do, sure. if, if you were king for a day, what would the defensive tactics, you know, the, the hands-on element look like? And then what would the physical standards look like in law enforcement? Because obviously that would mirror, you know, EMS and, and, and fire as well. First and foremost, I would bring back the chokehold, the naked chokehold. I would bring back the brachial plexus stun, the two main things that worked the best in law enforcement were basically outlawed or that you can still do them, but it has to be, uh, deadly force warranted um, and train them properly on the application of it and train them in capo which is the resuscitation uh, process of it not just teach them an element and say okay go out and do it that's why it was outlawed because too many people died uh, because it was an improperly uh, placed chokehold into a stranglehold and cave someone's windpipe in and uh, so, yes, much more training would be going into it. I would, uh, you would have to remain physically fit or you lose your job. You know, in SWAT, okay, you have to pass a, a physical agility test every six months. And it's not an easy physical agility test. And, I mean, we're talking, you have to go from, 
a mile and a half run, half uphill, half downhill to 50 Hindu push-ups or dive bomber push-ups, 50 squats, uh, 10 burpees, four tire flips. And you have a certain time frame you have to do that. Then you have to take a fully dismantled M4, put it together. You're so out of breath. You can heart your hands are shaking. You have to put all this intricate stuff together, which you completely field strip. You have to put that together. You have to get your gear on. And then you have to shoot a SWAT qualification course. And by now, your goggles are completely fogged up. You can't see anything. And you have to shoot and move at the same time at 50-yard shots where you cannot fly the eight ring. And if you fly the eight ring, you fail. And you have to do all of this in six minutes. So everybody on SWAT was in damn good shape. And that should be the same in law enforcement in general. You know, you, got, you, you have to pass it in the police academy. Why don't they, why don't they say where you have to keep passing it? Um, just like you passed the president's patch in, you know, growing up. So I would put that back and swing right. That would be the first thing I did as king for a day. It would start from childhood. Absolutely start from childhood. And everybody would have to be involved. Doesn't mean... You know, you know, we didn't get trophies for participation when I grew up. You had to deal with failure. If you failed, you had to deal with it. You didn't get no participation trophy. You know, you either, everyone participated in the president's patch. You were made to. Didn't mean you were going to earn it. That's why it was so neat to have the patch. And I wish to God I still had my patches. I lost them somewhere along the line. I would love to get a hold of four of those patches. Because it progressed every year into a harder little deal, and uh, was really neat. I wish they still did it. Well, it's interesting you talk about that because I always push back on the participation. Excuse me, participation trophy conversation because I think it gets it gets misunderstood, it gets mis- misused, and, and you're not in this case. When PE became sports, which again, you know, what I love about these conversations, Doug Orchard educated me in, in the basically post-World War One. there's a very anti-Europe sentiment. And PE, a lot of the stuff that we did in gyms back then, was viewed as having European roots. So they basically shunned it and brought in games instead of PE. And then here we are today. So the participation trophy, you know, there's no, no you know, prize for second or third or whatever to me, is a really shitty example in the world of sports. I mean, it, it applies, excuse me, to the world of sports, but does not apply to everything else. It's like saying, uh, well, Steve is the best black belt, so no one else can progress and get their belts. No, a belt is a, you know, a show of you reaching a certain standard. So that is technically a participation trophy, but in your physical journey, your own unique physical journey, not whether yeah, you won a yeah. game or not, you know? So that's, exactly. that's what I find. Like my little boy went and, you know, it was a few years ago now. He was still quite young and got up at, you know, 5.30 a.m. in the morning to go do a triathlon on a Sunday. And only three kids of each division got a trophy, you know, like won a position. But fucking hell, man kudos to every single child that got up at 5 30 when everyone else was in their bed and ran and swam and rode a boat excuse me rode a bike you know in the the cold or heat or whatever it is in their particular area and i think that's the danger of that conversation 
a trophy yeah, isn't yeah. about winning. Like you said, it's being given that for doing, for, for not working hard. But uh-huh. I think, as you said, with the patch, that in, in theory is a participation trophy, but it's one that you earn by forging your own path versus winning Absolutely. a game. Absolutely. And if you didn't get it one year, you were like, ah, oh, I want it. And your friends got it. I'm going to work harder because I want to get it next year. Uh, that that kind of thing. And it also helped you deal with uh, failure and defeat. Where you know, no one wants to be defeated now. Um, but there's got to be a loser in anything that you do. And you have to be able to deal with that. Because it's part of life. And if you don't like it, you're going to have to do better and figure out a way to do better. Absolutely. Yeah, I learned, I mean, it's not cliche. You really do learn more from your losses. Because if you win, you're like, all right, I did everything perfect. That's only where you learn. From failure. That's how you learn, period. If you ain't failing, you ain't learning. <laughs> In my book, you have to fail to learn. Um, you know, you can't, anybody that, that tries to go out and take life by the horns is going to fail unless you're just luck on your side kind of person. I'm sure they're out there, but there's not very many of them. I guarantee you. hundred percent. Well, it's interesting what you said about the, um, the SWAT test. And I've made this observation and I'm not law enforcement on fire. Obviously we're very, very parallel to each other, but. Well, you guys are in a lot better shape than law enforcement, but hands down. Possibly in some areas, you know, but sadly we have a lot where, and it's just, you know, I, I'm very, very diligent at highlighting what the shift work does to us. It breaks us oh, down. Yeah. You know, if you're in shape in, in a first responder profession, you're in shape despite the environment, not because of the environment. And that's a big conversation in itself. Yeah. However, I agree with you 100%. If, if a police officer is supposed to be at this level to be SWAT, then every police officer should be at that level because that's obviously an elite, you know, it's a peak level for a law enforcement officer. It's the same with fire. But with the lack of annual standards, um, yeah. you know, I've had uh, Hawaii, excuse me, Hawaiian lifeguards on the show. I lifeguarded for a while myself, but just, just you know, pools and lakes, never on the, on the ocean. But we were held to a, a standard. And I even in the stunt show I do now, which is a live show, just last week, I had to do a, a every six-month fitness evaluation. And it was pull-ups and burpees and shuttle runs and box steps. And, um, you know, then we did like, you know, some, some kicking and punching Tabatas. And again, it wasn't like they were looking to fire us, but it was like, we expect you to be at this level because you are running around, flinging yourself around and, you know, throwing your, your limbs at the point where you could break someone's face. So, yes. you know, no so one. Yeah. So, so for the police and fire community and unions to push back and go, it's not fair. It's like, you you have no leg to stand on because as you said when we went through the academy they told us at the front door what was expected of us and i don't know how we managed to get to the point where administrations and unions were allowed to push back on the very thing that not only makes us better at our job but actually allows us to retire healthy at the end of it totally true totally true i don't know where where it failed it failed it failed miserably um, especially in law enforcement. Law enforcement is, uh, it's notorious for guys retire. They die a heart attack four or five years later. They, you know, they've, they've developed high blood pressure from stress. 
uh, you either you you uh, deal with it in two ways. One, you work out, you work your ass off, and uh, number two, you drink. Uh, I would rather be the person that say you need to work out and become a fitness fanatic than an alcoholic because you know as well as I do, you deal with the shit of the shit and it affects your brain. Um, no matter how you look at it, if you're a firefighter or a police officer for three years or more, you're going to be dealing with some level of, of uh, I don't want to say the word PTSD, but you're dealing with issues if you've if you've been out there working the working the street no way around it unless you're a complete sociopath and so you need you need avenues uh you need to keep the blood pressure down you need to keep the fitness levels up uh you need to be functional firsthand first and foremost you know if i train someone they're like oh, i want to get into you know weights I don't start them with weights. I'm like, you're going to have to be able to do 500 Hindu squats and 250 Hindu push-ups back to back before I'll even consider teaching you anything. Um, that, that's what Carl Goss used to do before he would train anybody in wrestling in submission wrestling. They had to put in the time to do that. They had to be that level before he would even bring them on the mat. And I don't know if you know what a Hindu squat is or a Hindu push-up. Um, it's a bodyweight calisthenic that uh, the Pelwani wrestlers of India came up with uh, probably a thousand years ago. And it's, it's very similar to a Navy SEAL push-up where they kind of dive bomb down and come back up. It's a dive bomber push-up and a squat where you're swinging your arms back and forth as you're breathing going into a deep squat with your knees over the top of your toes. That sounds like heresy. Knees should never go over the toes. <laughs> uh, no, that's complete BS though. Yes. With, bo with body weight, you can totally go over the top of your toes and you should go over the top of your toes because it, stre it strengthens areas of your legs. You would never want to do that at, at uh, weight, but body weight is completely fine. I'm just following a program by a guy called Ben Patrick. I'm actually going to interview him next week, but uh, his handle on Instagram is knees over toes guy. And it's just that oh. he was a basketball player, completely fucked up his knees, had one reconstructed, the other one still torn up. And he just took a deep dive into, you know, ex exercise physiology, PT, all, all those worlds and realized exactly what you're talking about. That, that, you know, sadly, some of the stuff that was taught was misinterpreted as happens so often. And so we were never putting our knees over the toes, forming immobility, which then was creating knee injuries. So his Absolutely. program now is these deep lunges and, you know, these what would be uh, viewed as kind of like a pistol squat, you know, and, and it's exactly yeah, that yeah. body weight with uh, extreme, you know, um, angle at the hip uh, at the the ankle at the knee and yeah i've noticed it just in the few weeks i've been doing it, it's worked wonders so far oh it works it works phenomenal and uh anybody that wants to get in i mean talking tip top shape cardiovascular wise with uh muscle endurance is if you did the two exercises i'm talking about would put you at a level i mean we're talking professional athlete level.
if you can do 500 Hindu squats and 250 Hindu push-ups, and I'm talking to do 40 squats, 20 push-ups, 40 squats, 20 push-ups, 40 squats, 20 push-ups, 10 sets of that, you are in damn good shape. And I have a fused lower back from an injury, which lost me my law enforcement career. And uh, it's the only thing that keeps me going. If I don't do it, I'm crippled. But I can, I still am at that level at 55 years old. And it's a workout that takes, we're talking 35 minutes of nonstop, uh, nonstop cardio where you're actually using body weight. And if you use an O2 trainer, which I do, now you're, now you're putting yourself in uh, intermittent hypoxic state, which is like training at altitude, and you get benefits from that. I mean, complete benefits from that. I'm a big advocate of hypoxic training. What it does, does to the immune system, and it's just now coming out in science. I don't know if you've ever heard of Wim Hof. You should get him on your show. He has been. I had him on about two oh, months yeah. ago. It was amazing. Oh, I'm a big Wim Hof guy. I, I've been doing the Hof program for about six years daily, and I have not missed a day. And in that six years, I have been sick once. Incredible. And I used to get sick like four times a year. And I, I'm a big ice bath person. And uh, it's become a huge part of the training that I do. And so Hoff breathing is something I do every single day. And it is, it is training altitude. You know, you're doing your breath retention. It's, it's intermittent hypoxic training. And you can do it more. There's many ways to get there, not just Wim Hof way. But he's the one that got me started on it. And I'm such an advocate of it. It's unbelievable. He's, he's he is a superhuman. Uh, he truly is, and such a nice bloke as well. I mean, I was oh, I was amazed God. when I got because I, I tried reaching out when I first started the podcast. It took me almost five years to get him on. So when I finally did, and also I wanted to try and ask him some different things rather than the same things that you know he talks about a lot in his interviews. But yeah, I mean, just such a such an incredible person, and and you talk about you know, the control of the human body and the resilience of the human body. And we did this, like I said, two months ago. So coming out of the pandemic as well, what a great kind of, uh, you know, leader in getting you to understand just the incredible innate healing element that the human body has if you give it the right movement, nutrition, and breath work. It's amazing. And, I, you know, I put breath work above everything. Because it's the first thing we do when we're born. It's the last thing we do when, we're di when we die. We take a breath. We exhale a breath. So it's the top of my list. It comes above nutrition. It comes above everything. Without air, you die. And so that's my, my take on it. And uh, start your day with, with, brief, with breath work. Uh, next comes nutrition. Next then comes the, the other physical stuff that I do. You got to feed the body with the right fuel, not junk. But uh, I've seen, I have a friend that I got involved in this and he has a, a form of tachycardia where his resting heart rate was around 130. Oh, wow. And for the last 15 years. And he was on beta blockers because of it. 
And he's like, my cardiologist, they don't know why this has happened. Um, oh, and he would come on your show, by the way. And he's, he's a retired ABC agent. Oh, brilliant. Uh, Perfect. We've talked about it. He goes, tell him, tell him about me. And I said, okay, I will. <laughs> anyway, uh, he was on beta blockers for close to 15 years. I said, how open are you open-minded wise? He goes like, dude, I'm, I'm completely open-minded. We were working on a surveillance, uh, private investigation surveillance. I brought him through a breathing routine and, uh, we kind of left it that. He loved it. He's like, Oh my God. Well, that night he called me up and he said, dude, he goes, I haven't had to take a pill. I said, what do you mean? He goes, normally he goes, I'm, I'm taking, I forget the medicine he's on. He was taking way more than the allotted that science has allowed the human body, but he had to, otherwise his heart would just explode. Basically. He said, normally I would have had to take another pill. I haven't had to take a pill. And I said, see, I told you. And so he starts the program and not, not the Wim Hof method, just Hof breathing. And I have a couple other pranayama uh, techniques involved in my breath work. He started doing this within three weeks. He's off his medication after being on it for 15 years. Dude. Incredible. Cardiologist is like, no, this is not possible. And he starts telling his cardiologist what he's doing. And his cardiologist starts looking up Wim Hof. Oh, my God, there's so many scientific studies. Why don't I know about this? Um, he's gotten off his blood pressure medicine. He's gotten off the beta blockers. He still has to keep them on hand in case he can't do a breath routine and his heart starts popping up. But he's taken like one or two pills a month where he used to take six pills a day. Incredible. And he's such an advocate of it now. He's like, dude, you saved my life. I can't even tell you. And I was like, well, it's, it's a breath work, man. So it's been around. It's, it's written in ancient Sanskrit. It's been around for so long and it's finally coming where it's uh, Western medicine is starting to recognize it because I mean, you can lower your blood pressure by breathing daily. You know, at 55 years old, my blood pressure is, is 110 over 70. Uh, my cholesterol is around, my overall cholesterol is around 60 and my resting heart rate's 55 and I'm 55. And how many medications so, do you take to get all those numbers right? I, zero. <laughs> zero. Exactly. Um, nutrition, most high blood pressure is a nutritional deficiency. Uh, even top cardiologists are starting to say this now. They, they put people on super beet and garlic and uh and cumin and their blood pressure goes down i mean it's oh and uh magnesium that is a magnesium deficiency in most people that have high blood pressure so a lot of these cardiologists now are prescribing vitamins and not having to give uh blood pressure medication to their patients so i'm a big advocate of that but you got to take care of the inside as well as the outside. Absolutely. There's, there, there's many strong guys out there, but they're walking time bombs with their blood pressure. Yeah. No, hundred percent. We have written about this in the, in the book that I wrote. I mean, you know, we, I know probably most of the people that I had 
in the back of my ambulance that died, you know, we were the last people that they saw. I'm sure when I went to the doctor's office, their blood pressure was 130 over 90 with their blood pressure meds. It didn't save their life. I mean, that's still high anyway, but you yeah, know, that's probably, no. but it doesn't make you healthier. And that's the problem is that that, the, the actual health got lost amongst, you know, the, treating the symptoms. And I'm glad that there's starting to be a shift. I think it's education too, as much white noise and, you know, keyboard warriors there are on social media there's also a lot of people disseminating great information that are getting people to realize there are other ways than putting you know chemicals in your body to fix the ailments that, that plague us at the moment 100 percent. and this this goes into another conversation of big pharma which has controlled the medical community for so long yeah that's why nutrition is not taught in medical school you know, every doctor should be a nutritionist. Why do you think they aren't? Coca-Cola, all the, the big seven companies don't want it. It would be, it would be the demise for them. Um, you know, pharma wants you medicated, and I'm a big believer in that. They're evil, evil people. Well, I believe it has, that. The, the, it has its place, but. I'm sorry, I was going to say, I think as well, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the actual medical programs of the colleges are funded by drug companies too. So a lot of the research oh, yeah. and all that ties back into pharmacology versus health. Absolutely. You know, for instance, okay, when I got into Iron Palm, okay, and when I got into the Strength Beats, there is a liniment in, in uh, Chinese culture called Bit Da Jiao. And it's an herbal concoction with an alcohol base. And I learned from my iron palm teacher, it's something that you have to use so you don't develop blood clots. It helps your bones heal properly so you don't get arthritis from this training. And I have no signs of any arthritis. And, you know, I have 20 years in on this. Um, yet, Western medicine doesn't recognize it. And it, it's a better anti-inflammatory than ice. I'm such an advocate of it. I make it myself now. I've learned how to combine the herbs and make it myself. And I've turned a couple of friends onto it that have injuries. And they're like, oh, my God, I put it on a, I had a torn hamstring with a big black bruise. <clears throat> I put it to dip dodge out on it for three days and the bruise is gone. I mean, it dissipates. Uh, stagnant blood like nothing else and so it's getting to the point where western medicine is recognizing this and uh, a lot of these western physicians are also becoming eastern physicians because of it because of the herbs and uh, the the, uh, the uh, homeopathic uh, ways of healing where you're, you're uh, just aiding the body to heal itself and not putting a Band-Aid on the situation by throwing medication in, which could also lead to numerous other uh, medical problems and health problems. Absolutely. And what, what was the name of that um, Chinese herb again, Chinese compound? Dit, dit Da Jiao. Yeah, Dit Da Jiao. If you want a, another person who you should interview is Dr. Dale Dugas. He's an iron palm master. And he's also a, a Chinese physician, and uh, he's big into strength and, and training, and he's who I learned Iron Pump from, and he's who I learned. I get my herbs from him, and I make it myself. I put the herbs into a gallon jar, fill it up with vodka, and shake it every day for five weeks, 
let it all mix together and then it's now usable and i swear by it it heals injuries as long as it's external you can't get it in your eyes mouth or in an open cut but if you have a broken bone or torn any type of torn fascia or tissue heals it so fast takes the inflammation out so fast and this is the this is the interesting part have you ever read the bible um parts of it yeah i mean i was exposed a lot when i was younger yeah okay well the two two of the main ingredients in ditajau are frankincense and myrrh now that was one that was two of the three gifts given to Christ by the wise men in the Bible. Well, no one knows why it was it was had its uh, held its weight in gold is because that's what it was used for. It was a herbal concoction that would be mixed with either rice wine or some type of alcohol base that was used to heal injuries. And uh, the Bible doesn't talk about that, but that's what it was used for and it's i mean it goes back to ancient sanskrit um these recipes and stuff that works phenomenally and uh, people should explore it so look up the dajau there there are many companies out there that sell the herbs that you can make your own solution brilliant well i appreciate because i'm always looking for i mean even even cbd was something i just discovered god not even oh, sure. 20 years ago really and you know I've, yeah. I've been taking that and that's incredible and ultimately that's that's hemp you know that's another plant so i think the arrogance of modern medicine is to disregard you know thousands of years of ancient wisdom absolutely and you look into the politics of it why was marijuana illegalized in the first place Oh, you look at it, it comes from racism and, and the absolute f- failure of alcohol prohibition is really the roots of it. Well, the paper industry is the first. And that right as well. That. Yeah, that as well, the hemp market. Pa- paper and cotton um, had nothing to do with the, with the, uh, with the, uh, the effects of getting high, but it shows you how, okay, this is how, uh, much the DEA, okay, the Drug Enforcement Agency, they put it as a Schedule One, which means it has no medicinal purposes whatsoever. How in the fuck do they know that? There are so many people that have been helped by marijuana, it's not even funny. And I'm not, uh, cancer patients, for one. Uh, the CBD has one aspect, but the, the, other, uh, the other aspects also, for, for pain and things of that nature, which is much better than putting an opioid into your body. Absolutely. I think pediatric seizures, THC, is shown to be incredibly effective with those. Oh, what about the girl Charlotte? That's where Charlotte's web came from. Yep. Ever heard that story? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, and I've actually had the Charlotte's web CBD. It was amazing. Um, really amazing. It saved that girl's life. And that company accidentally came across that plant that had no THC in it, and they kept it going just for her. And now it's become a a national deal. But they saved that little girl's life. She was having seizures every single day until they and and it was because they had to go to uh, Colorado because it was the only place legal. So they had to move her there just to get her treated, which is just a sin that you have to do something like that absolutely 
Well, Scott, we, we've just scraped the surface. I mean, we haven't talked about your injury that, that took you out of law enforcement. We haven't talked about, um, you know, the private investigator role. So I oh, think we'll okay. have to do a, we'll have to do another conversation down the road because I want to yeah, transition yeah. closing questions and, and, you know, be mindful of your time. But, uh, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot more we can discuss. So I see around two in our future. Oh yeah, absolutely. Love to. And I, I was just, this was my main focus on this one is, you know, for the health and wellness. Uh, I think we covered that, uh, very well. And that was my main goal in this interview, because that's what I'm into doing as far as training and training other people, uh, is look at the, look at the overall picture. Uh, as closing words, I'll say this, okay. As far as strength goes, if you can't hold on to something, it doesn't matter how strong the rest of your body is. So that means grip is priority and training. Core comes next and then back and legs after that. That is the priority of, of someone training in my book, um, as well as, uh, extreme cardio fitness you got to have the breath you got to have the breath if you get out if you get if you get winded on the street you're done and this is why so many cops are having to draw and fire their weapons they're they're getting gassed out and now their life is on the line and they have no choice when if they just trained maybe they didn't have to do that Absolutely. And there's, and there's some great examples, you know, of the, the officers that do take great, you know, ownership of their skills and their fitness. And there are great YouTube videos for that too. I mean, foot pursuits that are, you know, it looks like the person running away is in, in wet concrete compared to the, you know, athlete that's hunting him down. And some of these officers that clearly have wrestled or trained jujitsu and, you know, taking someone down, even disarming someone without having to pull a weapon. So look to those people as inspiration that that's how it should be done. That's how it should be done. And it should be made mandatory where there is training like that. If you want to be a cop, you got to live the freaking life and that's living as a warrior. You got to train. If you don't, it's a disservice to yourself, it's a disservice to your community uh, you're putting your other officers at risk because they're having to come save your ass. And you got to look at it. If this is what you're going to do, it's a life. It's not just a job. Being a cop, that's a, that's a life. Being a soldier, that's a life. You know, being a uh, firefighter is a life. And you're putting your life on the line for your community. Absolutely. You gotta, you've got to be able to put the time in to, to save your own freaking ass when it comes to that so i so appreciate you having me on the show I really do no it's been a great conversation i want to pull out a few things out of you quickly before i let you go sure the sure. first one i love to ask is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated i would say the the spiritual journey of joseph greenstein the mighty adam um is a great book to read and it is about his journey of a kid in Poland that had tuberculosis that wasn't supposed to live another year and he hooked up with a wrestler strongman that took him all around the world to India to Japan he learned jiu-jitsu he learned he trained with the Palwani wrestlers and he became the godfather of the modern day circus strongman and lived into his 80s 
was still bending 60 penny nails a day before he died. Wow. Amazing. Insane. Oh yeah. Insane. And, and a lot of people were like a 60 penny nail. What's so hard about that? Go get a 60 penny nail, wrap it up in a towel and try to bend it. And you will completely know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I've never had that recommended before as well. So that's a brand new book for me to add to the list. So thank you. Sure. Sure. Any other questions you got? Or? Yeah. So same question. What about movie and or documentary that you love? Um, oh, movie would be a hard one. I'm, I'm such a film buff. I mean, Man Who Would Be King with Sean Connery and Michael Caine. Uh, That's just a phenomenal freaking movie. But uh, I'm, I'm real privy to the movie Underworld because I'm in it. <laughs> <laughs> and it demonstrates my whip work of 20 years of uh, whip work training under Anthony DeLongeon. So you'll see me with uh, silver bladed bullets in that movie. So you got to check it out. Was that uh, Kate Beckinsale? Was she the yeah, leader? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I, tra- I trained Kate for that movie. I trained her in her martial arts, her firearms, and uh, all her body, everything. My whole aspect of training her for that film. Uh, besides having, I was assistant stunt coordinator on it. And then I had a part in it as well, where I played Soren, the vampire with the silver bladed bullwhips. Uh, she liked me so much. She took me to Prague with her on Van Helsing to train her for that. And I trained her on a couple other shows. So I was her personal trainer for, for a bit. Fantastic. Beautiful. Yeah, she's she's a great actress. She's definitely one of my oh, favorites. Yeah, yeah, she's fantastic. And you trained um, on, on a lot, several Tarantino films too, didn't you? Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I was on Kill Bill. I trained Uma on a knife fight sequence that she did with Vivica Fox. Um, I was in Reservoir Dogs. I actually played a cop that was chasing after Steve Buscemi when he gets hit by the car. I'm one of the lead cops telling everyone to get the fuck out of the way because I'm running in East Los Angeles. That was kind of weird. That was my first movie I ever did. And I told Quentin, I met him. I was there with a stunt coordinator, Kenny Lesko, and I said, "I said, hey, I can show you how this really would, would go down. I used to be a cop. And he goes, get him in wardrobe. And I didn't get a credit for that movie, but um, that was my first film I ever did. My, my first stunt work that I ever did on film. Well, Steve then, Buscemi is someone I'm trying to get on because he's a, a you know he's a revered, yeah, revered in the fire. So it's kind of like urban legend, you know, because he never talks about yeah. it because he's a, you know such a oh, it's, humble it's guy. Yeah, but and uh, he he went back to his fire station during 9/11 and said, "Give me my turnouts." Mm-hmm. And was digging in the pile. And they did. Yeah, they did. Uh, and that's the way it's looked upon in New York, man. It's a, it's a brotherhood over there. That's one of the best jobs that you can possibly do. But uh, no, and then I did uh, Pulp Fiction with with uh, Quentin, the Kill Bill, and now that they're doing a remake, I think he's going to remake Reservoir Dogs. Oh, really? I want to get a hold of him and say, "Hey, remember me?" You should. <laughs> you should. That'd indeed. be funny. I think he said he's going to remake Reservoir Dogs as his last movie before he retires. Is the rumor I heard. I wonder if he wasn't quite satisfied with it the first time then. I don't know. It was the first movie he ever did. Um, 
and it was a very low budget. He had a lot of great guys in it. Um, just a phenomenal movie. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Well, I had uh, John Travolta on the show. He actually lives in my town, and he came to the house and did an interview, and uh, that was an incredible change from i mean obviously he worked the whole time but you know a lot of us knew him you know retroactively from um you know greece and staying alive and then the next thing he comes back as that character and we're like oh my god oh this yeah. is a whole no, different I, I world know, for him now i know john i've worked with him on several films um several movies uh white men's burden and pulp fiction i think so we we know each other on a first name basis so if he saw me on the street, he would say, hey, Scott. <laughs> kind of cool, I guess. Yeah, no, a very nice bloke. All right, what about documentaries? Any of those that ring a bell to you or, you know, kind of resonate with you? I, I, if you give me some time to think about it, I could come up with a with a list off the top of my head. It's very difficult. There's, there's a documentary about the Mighty Adam that's great, um, Joseph Greenstein. I can't remember the title of it. It might just be called Mighty Adam, um, which is great because that's where my lineage comes from. Um, but there are some documentaries that need to be made. There needs to be some documentaries about the catch wrestlers and the, cir- and the circus uh, grapplers. It, it's just such a wicked story of uh, how it all came to be. And a lost martial art. There was MMA way before MMA. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is the time now. I mean, documentaries, to my, in my opinion, are oh, yeah. truly coming into their own now. So hopefully, you know, someone listening will, you know, maybe even think about that. I mean, if that's their passion, and you know, if if, if Doug can do this this amazing um, documentary about this 1950s PE program, then someone else surely can pick up the helm with a catch wrestling documentary. Oh. I think so too. It would, it would be fantastic. And, and the, the, uh, split of, you know, no one thinks that professional wrestling used to be real. Well, it was, and there was a split where it was still real. And there's the difference between a shoot and a work. Um, a lot of people don't know that. And they just look at it going, Oh, it's all fake. It's, you know, well, at one time, it was 100% real, and these guys were doing it to feed themselves. Yeah, no, exactly. All right, well, then, you mentioned uh, Dr. Dale Dugas. So are there any other people that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Um, I, can get, I can get you Paul Lopez's information. He's a retired ABC agent. He's a private investigator. We work together. He's big into training and he just has a great story as far as how important breath work is because it saved his life. Um, and I have his contact info if you need it. Cause he said, I'll, I'll come out and say it. Whatever he wants me to talk about, I'll talk about it. But he changed, he completely changed his physiology. He rejuvenated his liver off of breath work alone. And he still drinks. The, the blood work came back. The doctor said, this is impossible. This cardiologist said, this is absolutely impossible. This is a miracle. It's from God. And he's like, no, this is from breathing. And the doctor is like, there's no way. And he started giving him the research on it. And the doctor starts looking at all this Wim Hof stuff. And he's like, 
oh my God, why didn't I know this? You know, and now this doctor is starting to prescribe this to patients because his blood work came back from fatty liver to 25 year old liver, non drinker, and he still drinks. His whole physiology just completely changed off of breath work alone. I think that would be a great show. If, if Maybe you've already done one on it. I don't know. No, I've done a lot of breath work, but not from that lens. And when you say ABC agent, I'm not familiar with that acronym. ABC is, uh, is, uh, it's, it's alcohol bureau. Um, okay, California, like, like, like ATF, that kind of thing. Yes. Yes. They, they go around and make sure that, uh, Bars aren't selling to underage people. Uh, I don't know what the actual ABC stands for. Alcohol something commission, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, he did that for many, many years and then retired out. He's a lot of law enforcement, but uh, huge fitness advocate and now a huge breathwork advocate. <laughs> I'm sure I'd be uh, shouting from the rooftops too. And yeah, Dale Dugas would be another great one. Uh, true master in in kung fu, so many different uh, styles. But one of, I mean, this guy's conditioned. You can kick him in the balls as hard as you can, and it will not drop him. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I want to do iron ball training. I got to say, no, no, but he, <laughs> he, he does it all. Full iron body. Amazing, and I have I haven't done the iron ball either, but I mean he'll he can sit there and just pound himself in the groin with a smile on his face. I was like, how? And uh, you know, I haven't taken it to that level, but I did take the iron palm to the level where I'm I'm breaking bricks with a slap of my palm, and those are patio blocks, uh, two inches thick eight inches across by 16 inches long and I can slap through them like they're nothing uh, where you would break your hand if you weren't conditioned for it. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure people know where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Decompress? Well, uh, a couple things. One thing I I really don't need to decompress because I do it every single day and that's my 20 minute breath program. I do that religiously. Uh, I do not miss a day ever. Seven days a week, I do my breath work. Then I do my thanks to the universe kind of meditation in about five to ten minutes, and then I work out. And the workout I do five days a week, and then I take two days off. But I I own a horse ranch. I have a couple horses. Um, I have five-acre property. Uh, Being outdoors hiking, climbing, uh, stuff like that. Being at the beach, just being out in nature is how I it can decompress. Cause it, work can get, uh, especially being a PI, but private investigator, it can get real busy and you're working nights and you're on, you're doing the same thing you're doing in law enforcement, just at a private level. You have to maintain your sanity being in shape and there's more to life than just work so you got to have the you know balance it out but uh people that are looking for balance start with breath and 
start with Wim Hof. You cannot go wrong with the Wim Hof method. That is a good place to start. Absolutely. Well, I agree 100%. Well, Scott, thank you so much. If people want to learn more about you, watch your videos, reach out to you, where are the best places online? Uh, go to TikTok at Scott McElroy 73. That is my best format, all my new stuff. I still do put it up on YouTube and stuff like that, but it's better to go on TikTok. Um, now that I'm retired from law enforcement, I got to get a website up and I'm still in the process of doing that. I'm going to get some training DVDs produced of uh, my conditioning program that I do that I've come up with and uh, things of that nature. But uh, research Carl Gotch with his training methods, the Pelwani training methods, the Pelwani wrestlers. Uh, Iron Palm Training, look up Dennis Rogers as far as feats of strength. Um, that's look up Danny and Asano for Kali Escrima or June Fawn. He's the top guy. Danny is the best in the world. He's just phenomenal. The most humble man you would ever, ever want to meet. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I hope I can get him on one day. Like I said, I got to, to do one of his seminars and was amazed. Not only his passion with martial arts, but the Philippines too. And my uh, wife is half Filipina. So, oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. So, so hopefully I can find a, an avenue in where they trust me enough to, to do an interview because that is, uh, you know, a true master of his field. Oh, absolutely true master of his field. And someone that is so open, you know, tells his students, go train with everybody. You know, a lot of martial arts is like, you don't train with anybody else but me. You know, it's that kind of political mumbo jumbo. So you need to train with different people. Find out what works best for you. Everybody's different. You know, someone can take jujitsu, Japanese jujitsu, and get something out of it that I did not. Um, I I like it better than, than Brazilian jujitsu. But I still roll with BJJ guys as well. But uh, I'm not ranked in BJJ, uh, and I, I, I don't have any interest to be ranked in, in uh, BJJ. So I just do do what I do. I emphasize more for street than for sport, and uh, but I like to keep myself in fighting shape, uh, basically 24/7. I, I train like I would be a fighter, but I'm not a fighter. Beautiful. Yeah, I agree completely because I mean, there's no off-season in law enforcement or firefighting either. Yeah, so. yeah. On, the, on the street, there's no off-season. And the bad, guy, the bad guys are training. They're out training. Well, Scott, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, we've been all over the place. You have such an incredible kind of life life story that we bounced a little bit, but uh, you know, there, there's so much value, and obviously the the parallel between the first responder professions that we were both in, the stunt world that that we were both in, even though mine was was live shows, yours was obviously film and television. But uh, it's been fascinating. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Right on. I appreciate. It. Thanks for having me on. I had a great time.